So I want to um, introduce from Huntington Beach, California, Lindy. Hi, my name is Lindy. I'm an alcoholic. This thing doesn't... I envision myself falling up the stairs. <laughs> Graceful as ever. Um, I, the tradition here, from what I... I don't know where to put this. Yeah, find a place for it. When I disappear, you'll know I'm thirsty. <laughs> or scared. Um, the tradition here seems to be to tell your sobriety date right off the bat, so we don't have that tradition. But... Um, I'd like it. It's a, it's a good tradition, and I, I, I thought this morning I would have been uncomfortable with that earlier when my sobriety date was just my dry date, <laughs> you know, like when you know what you did last night, <laughs> you have to talk about it. Um, anyway, uh, it, let's see, what is it? September 1st, 1977. And, um, <laughs> so I just had my seventh birthday, and... Uh, it was uh, real special. I love birthdays, and um, I love being sober. It's a miracle. And I was sitting over there thinking um, that they got the wrong person here, <laughs> you know, except for that's not true because, um, you know, what we share here is recovery. We share recovery from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and, um, and that's where I was. And I would just like to say... Um, that too many of you get up early. <laughs> Jeez, I thought it would be empty. Um, and uh, I feel real grateful that I've met so many um, wonderful people. I mean, you people are just just great, real warm and loving, and um, especially Doris. I feel like I have a new friend, the kind that will go on for years and years and years. We find that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have found that. And... Uh, there's something else I wanted to say, and I forgot what it was. Um, anyway, thank you, Gene. Is he here? Thanks for asking me. <laughs> um, I come from the East Coast, um, alcoholic home, um, a large lower middle class family, uh, a lot of kids. I mean, the neighborhood was filled with them, you know? It was one of those neighborhoods. There was, was just zillions of children, a lot of Irish Catholics, and uh, a lot of alcoholism. And it's real, it's a little more, I come from California, and it's so much different than New England. I mean, it's so much different. In California, everybody drives, and in New England, not everybody drives. A lot of people take the bus, they walk, they take cabs, they take subways, you know, and so you see drunks in the street more often. Here you just see the blue and light, white lights flashing a little more frequently in California. And uh, I come from a long line of stuffers, you know. In, in California, a lot of people are real analytical. You know, it's like we just, you know, learn to therapy, all kinds of things. And, and I mean, in California, I mean, in New England, you know, it's like stuffers. You are just raised. You don't look, you don't talk, you just, uh, you know, we're kind of notoriously a little on the cold side. And, you, and there are certain things you do not talk about, <laughs> ever. <laughs> and um, anyway, I come from a large family, and both of my parents were alcoholics, and they... Um, 
But it was a real predictable home. I don't come from a violent home. I am trembling up here. I'll tell you one thing I got to tell you that I'm so grateful for, and that's for number one that it's on Saturday morning, and two that I don't have to wait till Sunday to talk because now I can relax and enjoy the rest of the conference, you know. And um, I feel sorry for the speaker tomorrow morning. Is there something, you know? It's just a little pressure all the time. At least it was for me. And anyway, um, uh. My house was real predictable. There wasn't a lot of violence in the home. My dad uh, was an engineer. He worked in the aeronautic industry um, and he in Connecticut, and so he would drive to work and get off of work and then wait for this traffic that he doesn't know much about in Connecticut to clear and then come home. And my mom worked, and she had five screaming kids, and she would fix dinner and then shove his in the oven to dry out and um, wait for him to get home. And... Uh, <coughs> and uh, and, you know, get us kids ready for bed and, and um, sit down and read a book and have a six-pack of Schmitz, you know, and that's really the way it was. And it was that way every day. I had an older sister, and um, she was beautiful. She was, I was the second born. She was beautiful, uh, tall, pretty, a real doer, knew how to shop and pick out clothes and talk and got great grades, and she was just um, perfect in my eyes. And it's important for me to talk about her because, see, before I ever took a drink, I felt inadequate. Before I ever took a drink of alcohol, I felt just a little less than, just like I had to work just a little harder just to stay even. And, um, and that's always been a big problem for me, self-esteem, how I see myself. And, and um, uh, Anyway, Debbie was perfect in every way, and, uh, <laughs> or so I thought. And uh, I went to a Catholic school. We all did, so we learned about God at a real early age. And I did, and it was, who is God? God is love. Where is God? God is everywhere. And there's about 250 of these things that you better learn or you get the ruler, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so you learn, you know? And so God was, right from the beginning, real personal and loving. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I had my first drink, and, and I kind of described my house. Well, it was really predictable. You know, not a lot went on. Or a lot went on all the time. Um, uh, I had my first drink when I was 15 years old, and I was at a party, and I had been to a Catholic school. I was a very naive 15-year-old, very naive. I still had Barbie dolls at home. And, um, and so I'm at this party with boys, you know, and, uh, and they started to drink, and so I drank four cans of Colt 45 and um, the 16-ouncers. <laughs> And I got to tell you what happened, you know. I mean, but I'll, what happened when I drank alcohol is that um, I felt okay. I felt okay. You know, I don't know what it filled, but there was some something that I was missing. And when I took some alcohol, when I drank those four beers, I felt okay. I felt that at 15, kind of sophisticated and worldly and... Uh, and I wanted to have some fun, you know, and I just wanted to play. And I don't know how else to describe it. You know, when I was a little girl, I always chewed my nails. So I always chewed on my fingernails. And I used to look at those women with the long, pretty painted nails. And I always had, you know, nylons on. And they just looked so nice. And I saw those long, pretty nails. And, and uh, I wanted those, you know, but I chewed on my nails. And when I took a drink of alcohol, it was like instant fingernails. That quick. You know, I just felt... Just smart, just just sophisticated and nice, and and I just you know I just changed everything, and um, 
And so we were having a little party, and as I said, I was pretty naive, and the boys wanted to have a little fun too, and they started doing some rather bizarre things, and um, I wasn't that naive. <laughs> Tell them to go do it to somebody else. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I threw up. I blacked out. Uh, the world was spinning, you know, not just the bed, the world. <laughs> was on the move, and uh, and I loved it. You know, it seemed like a small price to pay. I hated the taste of alcohol. I hated. When I grew up, my parents drank. They always were drinking beer. There was always beer around. And my brothers and sisters would go around, and they just pick up a can of beer and just guzzle until my parents would take it away from them. You know, that's the way the household was. And um, I would never do that. I hated the taste of alcohol. You know, so it was take a sip. Eat a potato chip, take a sip, eat a potato chip, you know, but I choked these things down and I did what was to be my pattern, you know. I have never drank like a lady. I have been a blackout drinker from my very first attempt at drinking, you know, my very first. I am a drunk, you know, and, uh, uh, and so I drank and I, it's kind of important for me to talk about, my legs are shaking. God. <laughs> Um, it's important for me to talk about drugs here, too, because they're part of my story. And I'll tell you one thing uh, from this podium. Alcohol is the drug that kicked my butt. I am an Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm an alcoholic, but drugs helped to get me here a little quicker. And uh, uh, it's, it, it's part of my story. I, um, I was in high school, you know, and the disease of alcoholism was progressing in my home. And I uh, was had gone into the public school and I was having fun and and all the kids at school wanted to smoke some pot and so I did and there's one reason why I smoked it I was afraid I mean I had seen those movies you know they had showed us this was in the late 60s and they showed us movies of what happened when you when you smoked dope you know and you're a junkie in a week and I'm here to tell you it takes a little longer than that but if you're resistant <laughs> um Anyway, and I can remember just being so afraid when I picked it up, and there's one reason that, that I did, that I, it's peer pressure. You know, I wanted to fit in. I, I was so needy already, you know, and at the young ripe age of 15 or 16, I, st I, I was a people pleaser already, you know, and I needed to be accepted by my peers. I needed to fit in, and that's why I smoked, and I loved it, you know. And uh, when I was in the beginning of your high school, as I said, the disease of alcoholism was progressing in my home. And um, I came home from school one day, and my mom was in a coma. She was on the floor, and she died later that night, and she died from the disease of alcoholism at the age of 37 years old. And uh, I, like to, I like to talk about her for a minute because um, I feel like if we're sitting in this room, I don't care if it's your very first meeting and you've never been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous before, and you sit here, and 99% of your head is telling you, this is bullshit, baloney. This, uh, this, uh, you know, they're all lying. My life is um, a shambles. Things are never going to change for me. It will never get better. And and that's going on in your head. But you have one little tiny corner, and you and you're thinking, but what if it's right? What if it's true? What if it will work for me? What if this thing will turn my life around? and you have just a little tiny degree of hope, then you have a lot more than an awful lot of alcoholics die without. 
you see, because my mom was one of them. You know, she uh, had a lot of kids. There were kids. There was never enough money. She got married at 19. She had been living on a farm. She um, was thrown into the real world and responsibility before she was ready, as far as I can see. She never had enough self-esteem to say, hey, I'm not the only person who lives in this house. Why don't you guys help me out? I need some help in this house. You know, she felt responsible. She felt like she had to do it all herself. You know, and she didn't know what the problem was. She didn't, in my mind, have a clue of what the problem was. She didn't know that if she stopped drinking, her life would improve, that everything would change in her life. Everything would change. See, she didn't know that. And I think that if we're in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous and we have one little tiny moment of hope, we have so much more than a lot of people ever get, ever get. It's hope that things are going to change for us. Anyway, uh, um, there was, a, you know, we, we didn't quite know how to handle this. It was such a shock, you know, nobody really knew. And after she died and we started cleaning out that house, we found the bottles and all the closets because she always just had a few beers and a couple of Librium, except for there was bottles in all the closets. And they can call it heart disease. They can call it whatever they want, but she died of alcoholism, see. And, uh, and so I didn't know what to do. I felt like I had just lost my best friend, you know. I felt like I had lost the one person that loves me and accepts me. And, and she, I was like my mother's daughter. You know, there was Debbie, and she was with my grandparents, and I was the next one, and big hands like her, you know. We were Kmart shoppers. Debbie was sex all the way, you know. I mean, it was just it was just that way. And, and, um, and uh, so I felt like I got to get good now, you know. And I felt like I'm going to be the kind of girl she wanted me to be. I'm going to grow up. And so I did that, you know, I went to school every day, I quit stealing, you know, I, I, uh, I took care of my little sister, she was nine and my brothers were younger than me and my dad and I tried to get, get them together and keep that household together somehow and, and I decided that I would remain a virgin till I met him. You know, it's like I, I set some rules up for myself and uh, about three weeks later I said, forget it, I can't go through this, what an order, <laughs> I can't do this. And I went to hell on skis, as a friend of mine says. Um, I somehow made it out of school, and uh, and I started using drugs pretty frequently. I became a thief for a living, and um, and I and I uh, moved out of the house into my first apartment. And it wasn't really an apartment; it was one room. And uh, the bath and the junkies lived on the first floor, this boarding house, and the and the winos lived on the second floor. And we lived on the second floor. We were kind of in between, and I lived there with my my boyfriend. It was one room, the bathroom was down the hall, there was torn linoleum, it was all sticky, there was a twin bed, there was um, a little ugly sink and a little ugly green, ugly, ugly refrigerator with a little hot plate on it. It was $16 a week, and I felt at home there. I felt at home there. There was nobody there to tell me what to do. I didn't have to seek lower companionship, I would lived with it, you know what I mean? It was everywhere. And I felt at home there, you know. And uh, and I started using drugs real heavily. I developed a barbiturate habit for three years, and that's the way I lived, you know. I don't have to uh, tell you all the different cities that I lived in because they're all the same, and I'm here to tell you that physically, the way that I lived physically never got better, ever. It never got better unless someone did it for me. 
when someone picked me up and pulled me out of that and put me someplace else, then I lived in a nicer place. Never on my own. You know why? Because that's what I deserved in my mind. I don't know why some people are born with a a great deal of self-esteem and others seem to be born with a little less than, but, but, you know, I felt like I deserved that. And, uh, and, uh, three years later I woke up on the, on the floor of some dumpy apartment and I had overdosed on heroin and I knew that I better get away from these people or I'm gonna die. They are my problem. My friends are my problem. And, uh, these scumbags, that's what I thought. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, that's not a swear, is it? <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I did what became an MO for me, and that's I started to move. And I'm uh, two kinds of runner. I mean, I am a runner that way. I, there's something that is so exciting about being on the way. Not when you're getting ready to go or you're, you're, you know, you're still living in one place, and not when you arrive at your new destination, but being en route. You're on the plane, you're in the car, and you can feed yourself all the BS of it's going to be different this time. It's going to be, it's going to be better this time. And by this time, I'm starting to live. Um, you know, I mean, I went to a Catholic school. I was a young person. I was brought up with some morals, with some aspirations to do something with my life. I never set out in the morning to become what I was becoming. You know what I mean? I didn't look at myself and see the person that was performing all of these bizarre actions, I looked at myself and I saw a nice Catholic girl. I saw someone who wanted to do nice things for someone, someone who wanted to put something into life, someone who wanted to be a giver instead of a taker. I didn't see what I was becoming. My leg's doing it again. i got to take these shoes off. <laughs> and... Uh, And there's something about moving that makes it a little easier to believe all that stuff, being on the way. It's going to be different this time. When I get to Florida, it's going to be different. When I get to Florida, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to find some nice friends to run around with. I'm going to do good things, you know. And once I get there, and the truth is everywhere around me, you know, I can't BS myself quite as easily until I get on the plane one more time. And it was real easy for me to move. You know, some people, it's, it's, uh, they, uh, they kind of stay and, and develop relationships and, you know, their lives change and not me. You know, what, what was easy for me was to, to, to meet a bunch of new people and uh, be up and everything's fine, isn't life wonderful, let's go have a drink. The, the rough time came when I had to stay after a little while, after three months and I started to get to know what I was really like. That's when the rough time came, when the bills started coming in. <laughs> they had already shut the electricity off once, and I pulled the plastic tab out, and now they put a padlock on it. Now it's time to move. <laughs> See? <laughs> um, I'm having a hard time getting going here. Uh, I was starting to go to these bars, and, uh, and I worked as a bartender. You know, after I stopped stealing, I got a job as a bartender, and that was perfect for me. There can be no better job if you're an alcoholic, because we're all so full of BS, you know? And that's all you do is you stand around, you BS people all day long, and um, play cards, you know, and and uh, gamble and drink. And, uh, and where I had always been... 
I, you know, when I started drinking, I was a real people person. I needed people in my life. I needed to have fun. You know, I had a taste of reality, and it was not a lot of fun. You know, it hurt. It hurt real bad. And there's a part of me that just shut off when I had that taste of reality and said, I don't want that. I want to just have some fun. Life is too short. I just want to, I just want some relief. I just want to have a little fun. And, uh, and, and I needed people to do that. You know, I was the person where if we were having a party, you know, or a picnic or something, I was the one who tried to convince everyone at the party to quit their jobs and stay. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I did. Sometimes I did. Um, and, uh, but you know, in the end of my drinking, it wasn't that way in the last few years of my drinking. I couldn't be around people. You know, I mean, sometimes I would have relationships. My relationships, I, I, um, you know, where they started out sick and they started out, um, we were both drinking and using and it was crazy, but there wasn't a lot of violence and there wasn't a lot of ugliness, you know. And later on in my drinking, um, the people that I attracted in my life were, um, were cruel. They were takers all the way. And there was violence, you know. And, um, and I was running around and I was lying, cheating and stealing. I was whoring around. I was doing whatever I had to do to feel okay. I loved listening to Marguerite last night. She has a way of telling her story and talking about a lot of the things that a lot of us women had to do. And I never felt any dirt. I didn't feel anything when she was sharing that. And I don't know how to say that from the podium, say a lot of those things without making it sound offensive. I don't know how to do that. You know, maybe that comes with time. But I was so needy and I was so empty. I, need, I needed someone to make me feel okay. I needed someone to tell me that I was all right. You know, it's like I absolutely believe that it is impossible for me to wake up with one amount of self-esteem and self-worth and to live the way that I lived, lying, cheating, stealing, and doing whatever I had to do and to go to bed with any more self-esteem than I woke up with. It was like selling a piece of my soul every day. Selling a piece of my soul, you know. And eventually the supply just runs out, you know. And, uh, and that's really what happened, you know. I ran around those bars at night, and, uh, and I would wait for someone to ask me to dance or take me home or do whatever it was that I was looking for them to do so that I would feel like it was okay for me to breathe. I didn't have any other way. I didn't go home and pray. I didn't go home and be of service to other people so that I could get filled up and feel like a human being. You know, men did it for me. And women were not necessary in my life. Either you were going to get it or I was going to get it. Both of us weren't. And I couldn't be around you. It was competition all the way, see. And... Uh, and uh, I got out of a real bad relationship, and I was really on the move, and this was in my last year of drinking. Oh, I forgot to tell you, my dad got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was about 18 years old, he got sober. And he asked me to go to a meeting at about 18 years old. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You must be crazy. I'm not going to go to a meeting, you know. And Because uh, I knew what you looked like. I knew what you looked like, except for my father. 
um, you all wore raincoats. <laughs> I had this vision of Alcoholics Anonymous and everybody wore a raincoat and you were all old. You know? And I was 18 at that time. I'll tell you though, a miracle happened when he got sober. Not only did he get sober, but I got to see someone recover. I got to see someone whose life was so empty and filled with pain come to life. I got to see him smile. I saw my father go out and buy himself a color TV set. He never had enough self-worth to do that. He didn't deserve a color TV set. All those years, my friends came and took it a couple weeks later, but... (laughs) Tells you the kind of snakes I ran around with. And that's what I was. I was a snake. That's the way I felt about myself. I hated myself, and the only way I could get any relief was when I drank. I felt dirty. I felt ugly. I felt worthless. And when I drank, it was okay. I could make all those lies real again. I could, that look nice Catholic girl who never wanted to do anything to hurt anybody was there again. And I'll tell you the kind of things that I did. You know, I, I didn't get up in the morning and figure whose TV set I was going to take, or I didn't think of who am I going to put the screws to today. I mean, I didn't want to be that kind of person, and I, and I didn't act like that kind of person. The kind of things that I did were, um, I'll tell you the kind of daughter that I was. My dad was living down in Florida, and I uh, showed up there one time. I needed just to get the edge off, just to pull it together for a couple of weeks and regroup, and he let me stay with him. And, and my brothers and I got these tickets to a concert, which was about 50 miles uh, away. And so we went to this concert. It was one of these 12-hour deals all day long, you know, and it was in the late 60s, early 70s, and we had a great old time, and it ended about midnight. And me and one of my brothers wanted to go to the beach, which was 50 miles further away. So we hitchhiked to the beach, and, and some people picked us up, and they took us to their apartment. We partied all night, got up the next morning, got all cleaned up, went to the beach, and I met some people I really liked there. They were real nice people. This guy's name was Turkey. <laughs> they really called him that, and <laughs> it was before there was any derogatory, you know, feeling along with it, or I thought, I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, and, I, and so they said, well, why don't you just stay, Lindy? Why don't you move in with us? And I said, okay, sure I will. So I sent my brother home to my dad's. You know, when he gets there, my father says, well, where's your sister? And he says, well, she met some people, so she stayed. Do you know, I never called him for weeks. I never went home. Never once did it occur to me that he might be concerned. He might be worried about my welfare. He might wonder whether or not I'm alive or dead or had I been beaten up and raped. Never once did it occur to me to think about him. That's the kind of selfishness and self-centeredness I have. See, that's what I have. And uh, anyway, in my last year drinking, I'd gotten out of a real bad relationship, and I had moved again, and I was living in the Everglades National Park. What a great place to live if you're an alcoholic. There is no better 50 miles and nothing but you and mangroves and other drunks, you know? And, uh, and I drank a whole quart of um, scotch and uh, fell down the stairs in front of my boss. And I never got hurt, you know what I mean? I never got hurt from those kind of trips. And just roll with it, you know, you're so flexible and <laughs> mobile. <laughs> um, uh, and the next day he said, you know, Lindy, I think you drink too much. I had never heard anybody say that to me before. I had looked like an animal 
for years, and I had never heard anybody say that. I'm sure they said that. I'm sure they said that and worse, you know. But I never heard them, and I heard them this one time. Pardon me. And, uh, and I decided, yeah, I think you're right. I think he's right. I do drink too much. And so I decided that as of January 1st, I'll quit drinking for a month. If I cannot drink for a month, I don't have a problem. And I'll tell you what I did then as I set up the rules. And I see people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they set up the rules all the time. They say, I'm not an alcoholic because I don't have a 502. And then they get a 502 and they change the rules. <laughs> I'll be an alcoholic when I get five 502s, you see. And I wasn't able to do that. You know, I made it 26, 27 days without a drink. And uh, I was using all that time, you know, and, but I wasn't drinking and I still couldn't make it. I couldn't make it. I had to have a drink. Talk about white knuckle. Talk about feeling like a rubber band that is pulled as far as it can go and it's ready to just bang. That's how I felt. And I took a drink of alcohol and everything was okay. And I surrendered to my disease. I surrendered to the disease of alcoholism at that point. I said, that's right. I'm a drunk. Why not act like a drunk? And I blacked out every single day. I drank as much booze as I could get. You know, and uh, I got a transfer into Miami, and this place was beautiful. It was a lot like my first apartment. It was down in the in the second on Second Street in South Miami Beach, and that's a real poor, poor area of town. It's like a skid row. It's real. It's kind of scary, you know. And I fit in there just fine. I fit in there. I was perfect there, you know. And I used to get off of work at seven o'clock, and I take the bus home, and I go to the bar, and I would drink until I was almost annihilated. And then I would uh, stumble over to the dog track, because tonight was the night I was going to hit big, see? And I would play my $4. <laughs> and then I would stumble back to the bar to finish the job. And I never thought maybe I'll get hurt. Maybe someone will murder me on the way home. I didn't think about that. I didn't care. I did not care, you know? And that's the way I lived. And I had a couple of friends, and... Uh, uh, left and they, I was staying with them one night and I, I came into the house about midnight and uh, it didn't take quite as long in those days <laughs> to get where it needed to be and uh, Vincent was on his way out the door you know and I sat down and I was totally blasted one more time and, and uh, I started to cry like I did a lot in those days in the end. See, alcohol fixed me for a long time. And I really believe that if it still worked for me, if it still took away my pain, if it still fixed me and made me believe all those lies and made me feel like I was okay, I would still drink. I am not that strong. See, but it stopped working. I would drink and I would cry. What is wrong with me? Why is it no matter how hard I try, I take steps backwards instead of forward. Why do I just dig a bigger hole? Why can't I get out? You know? And I would write letters to my dead mother and to, and to God, what's wrong with me? You know, what's wrong with me? And Vincent looked at me and he said, you know, sometimes you really disgust me. I'll never forget those words. God, let me never forget those words. You know? And I heard him. And the next morning when I woke up and I was on that couch, that's all I could hear. And when I walked into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror, that's all I could see was a disgusting human being. I saw ugliness. Talk about hopeless desperation. There's something that's really sad about 
waking up one day, looking in the mirror and seeing someone that is so empty that they have nothing left and knowing that you have given it your best shot. I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to go. And I, I laid on that couch and I thought, um, I have to quit. I have to quit drinking because all the lies were gone. I knew what the problem was. I was an alcoholic woman. I was a drunk. See? And, and what I did was I went into that bedroom a couple hours later and I told my friends, guess what? I quit drinking forever. <laughs> and they said, oh, good. <laughs> they were overjoyed. And I stayed home, smoked a few joints for a few days and went back to work. And, uh, and I called my dad and I said, Dad, I quit drinking forever. And he said, oh, really? <laughs> he had been to AA. He knew all about it. See? There goes my knee again. Jeez. Gosh. Anyway, um, uh, I didn't drink. I didn't drink. I worked as a bartender. My father told me, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You go to a meeting. Go to a meeting. So about two weeks later, I went to a meeting. There was this girl that worked with me. She was about 35. Her liver was protruding, and she really needed it. <laughs> so I brought her. <laughs> it is incredible the way our brains work. I'll tell you. I will tell you. I'll tell you. It's just incredible. And so I brought this girl to a meeting. And I don't remember much of this meeting except for this one guy who smiled from ear to ear and said, and why are you here, dear? He is in Central Florida. Sounded a little like you. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I told him why I was there. I said, I'm bored with my life. There must be more. How absurd. You know what I mean? I lived like an animal for years and I come up with that and I believed it though. And, uh, and I didn't like AA. And I don't remember what they said, but I didn't like it and I didn't fit there. And so I didn't drink. And I, through some real bizarre circumstances, I will spare you, I ended up in California. And I went out there with a few friends, and they didn't stay too long. They left. And so then I was there, and I was living there by myself. I got a job selling cars for a living. And, uh, and I was going to nightclubs at night because I was alone, and I was lonely. And I wanted some friends. And I was sitting there, and by 10 o'clock at night, I knew that I didn't fit there anymore that I didn't belong there. I didn't have anything to say to those people. They weren't like me because I couldn't drink, and I knew that. And that morning, the obsession for alcohol was removed from me. That morning that I woke up and felt so terrible. And uh, and I didn't have to drink. And uh, it's called grace. <laughs> and... Um, and there was a guy who worked with me. He was the leasing manager, and he was the nastiest guy. He just never smiled. He was angry all the time. He always looked like he was, it was so unapproachable, you know, just unapproachable. And I walked up to him one day because someone had told me he was an alcoholic, and I said, I hear you're an alcoholic. And he just came to life, you know. He said, yes, why? And I said, well, so why? And he said, well, where do you go to meetings? And I said, I don't go to meetings. I just don't drink. And he said, you don't go to meetings. <laughs> And one of the first uh, uh, real God worked in my life for the first time that I could, that I saw, you know, and he sent me down there to 
meet his wife. She was a full-time employee at our central office back then, and she was having lunch with all her friends. And so I went, and I met all her friends, and, and they were going to a meeting that night, so they brought me to hear Clancy I at Newport Beach. And um, so I went to hear Clancy, and you know the kind of crowds that good. he pulls, right? And so there was a lot of people there. And I don't remember a lot of the way I felt at that meeting, and I don't remember what he said and I, you know, I don't recall a lot of that stuff, but, but I liked what I saw there. And, and although that I wasn't, you know, working the steps and calling a sponsor and being a service and doing all that, there were some things that I was not doing. I was not drinking. I was not whoring around. I was not lying and cheating on a real regular basis. I was showing up at a job and trying to take care of myself. I was physically, I was eating and I was, you know, exercising and laying in the sun and ironing my clothes and washing and putting on a little makeup and I was starting to feel better about myself. I was starting to feel okay, you know, and I showed up at that meeting and uh, the first thing I noticed was the women that I can remember, you know. And these women looked like they liked one another. They looked like they wanted good things for one another. They talked to each other and they smiled and they hugged and they kissed. And that impressed me a lot. And the second thing that I noticed was the men. <laughs> I was 23. I was starting to feel pretty good. I wanted to have some fun, you know. I wanted to have some fun. All those years I lived on the streets, I never had fun. When I lived in New England, I didn't go skiing. When I lived in Florida, I didn't go to the islands. I didn't do this and do that. I drank. I drank and I threw up. That's all I did. I did not have a lot of fun. And so after I quit drinking a little while, you know, I started thinking, I wanted some fun. I wanted to have some fun. Anybody who says it's not important is full of baloney. They're lying, <laughs> in my opinion. Because if you come in here single and you start cleaning up your act a little, we all wanted some companionship, you know. And I looked around and I saw some guys and they looked nice and, and uh, they looked like they took care of themselves. And I thought, yeah, I could stay here. <laughs> I could stay here, okay. And my first year, I got a sponsor. He said, get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. I still smoke on a few joints, but I didn't listen to that part. <laughs> and uh, a little later I did, and I, I quit that, and I changed my sobriety date for the first time. And then I, later on I had to change it again because of those two Valium. <laughs> anyway, um, I, uh, you know, I started to get involved in Young People's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to the dances, and I went to the meetings, and I went to the conventions, and I went to the campouts, and I had fun. And I did not have to worry about emotional involvement, you see. It is impossible for someone who doesn't have any emotions <laughs> to get involved. <laughs> I didn't know that. I was looking all the time, but I was safe. There is no way that I could have let anybody in like that. I asked a girl to be my sponsor, and... Uh, I called her once in a while, and she would have the same set answer all the time. She had three months. She would say, get grateful, get grateful. And I thought, I'm going to kill this woman if she says that one more time to me, you know. And she moved away to Seattle. And, uh, and I asked four women to be my sponsor that first year after that. You know what? I never called them again. I asked them, and I could never call them again. I was terrified to let anybody know what I was made of, to let anybody know what I had inside. I wasn't drinking anymore, but you know what I was inside? I was a snake. The way I felt about myself 
was about as low as you could go. You know, I hated myself. But every morning I woke up and I put it on and I went out there and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and I had a great first year. I was pretty numb, if you want to know the truth. You know, I was about from here up. And, and, um, after I had about six months of sobriety, somebody asked me if I wanted a job in a recovery home. I haven't talked about this in a long time. And I got a job in a recovery home for women. And I see how important it was for me to work in that recovery home because although I had lived on the streets and done some pretty uh, 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 unusual things, I hadn't seen the places physically this disease can bring people, can bring women. You know, and I worked in that recovery home and I saw women have seven and eight alcoholic seizures. I saw women who were 30 years old and looked 50, black and blue from head to toe. And I saw the whole recovery home circuit come in here, get it together for a couple of weeks, detox, go out, drink again, then go over here, go out, drink again, then go over here, go out, drink again, because this particular recovery home had a lot of detoxes and, and homes, a home for uh, several homes for bleh, men's homes. And, uh, and I learned a lot about the disease of alcoholism back then, a lot, you know. And I was at that point of sobriety where I wanted to scream from the rooftops about Alcoholics Anonymous. I had found the most precious gift. You know, I had some hope. Ninety percent of the time I thought like, I felt like, why bother? This is ridiculous. It's not going to work for me. Why should I keep going? You're a slow, you're a fast starter and a real slow finisher. You never do anything a hundred percent. Lindy, why should you even bother? You know, except for ten percent of me thought, but maybe, just maybe. And so I kept doing it. And uh, my first year was great, you know. And I woke up uh, one morning. I had about 13 months of sobriety. And uh, it was character defects on parade. <laughs> All of those character defects that you talked about that I had but didn't have. <laughs> I mean, I'm selfish, but I'm not selfish, you know. And... Uh, they were all right there. I woke up one day and they were just all right there. What a dose of self I had to swallow that day. And what happened is that I was at a do or die place. My first year was grace. I, I floated through it as relatively unemotional, you see. And my second year, some of my feelings caught up. And I like to talk about that because you know what? If it wasn't for people who shared their experience with me about what it was really like, I would not have made it because I would have felt like I was different. I would have felt like I'm the only one. And that would have made, meant that the same solution didn't work for you. That worked, wouldn't work for me. That worked for you. See? And so, um, my second year, I got a real good dose of self. And I decided that I was going to commit suicide or, or a drink, but drinking I knew wouldn't do it. It would be too slow a death for my taste and I wanted to die. And I called this one woman. Because I had heard enough, you know, and uh, I called this woman, her name was Janice, and she had about 12 years of sobriety, and she intimidated me more than anyone else in the program, and I'll tell you why. When I sat in a room with her, I knew that she knew. She knew all about me, but I didn't know. There is something that is so, it just made my skin crawl to sit in a room with someone who knew before I knew. 
I knew she knew. I just didn't know what she knew. <laughs> oh, it was awful, you know. And I called her because, see, I was willing. If she would have said jump off the pier, I would have done it because I didn't want not, did not want to give up my sobriety. And uh, and so we got together, and um, she said, "There's a few things I want you to do. I'll be your sponsor, but there's a few things I want you to do. You got to work the steps. We're going to work those steps together." And she said, "And I want you to go to three commitment meetings a week." You show up at the same place every single week, week after week after week after week. You don't go here with your happy face and here with your sad face so you can keep your images up, Wendy. You show up at the same place week after week, regardless of how you feel. And you uh, you get a job. You get a job in Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, I don't care if you're treasurer, although that not, may, not, may not be a good idea for you. <laughs> and she said... Uh, you, I don't care if you're a coffee maker or secretary or what you do, but you put something back into Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, and you call people. You call some of these women. And so I started to do that. You know, I was willing to do anything that she told me to do because I wanted to stay sober. And I had a taste of sobriety without a program. Because although I was going to all these meetings and trying to work the steps, I didn't do it the way they say to do it in the book. We took the step with another human being. See, we share with our, with God ourselves and another human being. Anything that said we did it with another person, I didn't see that. I have selective perception. I have selective hearing. I see what I want. I hear what I want. If I don't want to hear it, it isn't there. If I don't want to see it, it just isn't there. It's simple. You know, I came in that way, and sometimes I have to work it, and I'll be in that way now. And uh, I worked the steps. And, and it wasn't easy for me my second year. You know, I really had to just hang on because I didn't like myself, and I had found out who I wasn't. I had found out a lot of things that did not work in my life, but I didn't know the things that did work yet. I didn't find out who I was yet. You know, it's like we discard the old, and, and God isn't right behind us filling us up with the good stuff. You know, here's some peace, here's some serenity, here's some kindness, here's some love, here's some... You know, that isn't the way it is. got to earn that stuff. I had to earn it. I had to keep showing up when I didn't want to. I had to go to meetings when I knew they could all see right through me and see what I was really made of and see my fear. I had to show up anyway. I had to get on the phone and call people and say, would you bring me to a meeting? I would have said, can, can, well, can I come and pick you up? But I didn't have a car, <laughs> you know. So you don't need a car to stay sober, you know. I came in with a trash bag full of clothes. That's the same thing I started with when I started drinking. I never had anything. I didn't have a lot to lose except self-respect. Self-respect, you know. And uh, and in my third year, it wasn't a lot easier, but it was a little easier, you know. And I worked the steps. And they said, right, a fearless and moral inventory. And when I had a year and a half sober, I tried to do that. I tried. I wrote, and I wrote. I spent my second and third year writing. You know, every night I'd write. It was a cleansing thing for me. I needed to do that. And, uh, uh, but I couldn't get a fearless inventory. I was terrified I wouldn't see it. The one thing, <laughs> the big deal, you know? And, uh, I wasn't afraid I would. I was afraid I wouldn't. I was afraid I'd miss it and that would mean I'd have to drink again. And anyway, when I had three and a half years of sobriety, I was able to write a fearless and moral inventory. It was a good inventory. And I took another one about maybe a year ago, nine months or a year ago, and you know what? All that stuff is gone. 
It is gone. It doesn't motivate me into action anymore, those same old character defects. I have a whole new set. <laughs> See? <laughs> but those things are gone. You know? And, uh, and I dove into this program with both feet. You know? With both feet. I just jumped in. And anybody who said, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? I did it because I was afraid not to. For a long time I was terrified of becoming an AA clone. You know, I came around this program, you all sounded the same, you looked the same, you dressed the same, you talked the same. And uh, and after I got a dose of myself, I thought I would rather be an AA clone than have what I have. <laughs> and so I did that, you know. And uh, um, I got involved in service, you know, and I got a lot of jobs in AA, and I started as a GSR, and then I went to a DCM and a DCC, and now I'm secretary of the area. I've been secretary of meetings and, and coffee makers. And you know what? I have this head that thinks only negative thoughts. When I think about myself, I am a loser. I can never come up with a winner for me when I'm into myself, ever. I just know that it's not going to work. Why bother? The only thing that makes me feel good is service to other people. That is where the, the solution is for me. I need service in my life. That is where I get my self-esteem. That is where I get to feel sometimes like I'm so lucky that God loves me so much that he'll use me. Where I get just so filled up where there's no fear in my life because I'm filled with love. doesn't happen a lot. doesn't last very long. But I have had a taste of that. I have had a taste of that. When I was a, when I got willing to work this program exactly the way it's written in the book, when I surrendered to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I needed someone to give me specifics. They said, work the steps. And I said, how? How do you do that? I am willing. How? It seems so vague. It seems so vague. I needed, I'm the kind of person, I needed someone to say, read page 98. Go home and work the step. Read the 12 and 12. Read that 6 and 7 step. Then get on your knees. I needed that kind of direction. I was very sick, you see. And I'm so glad that I got it. We get what we need in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for a long time, I thought, I can't be happy until I have a man. I was young. I thought, okay, God, I have worked the steps. I have done these things. I'm five. I'm six years sober. I've been doing this for a while. Can I have someone to practice on? <laughs> See? You know? And, uh, and I had to get to a place where, and I surrendered one more time. <laughs> I surrendered one more time and there's a part of the big book and it talks about, uh, how we, uh, how we, <laughs> oh boy, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> anyway, I had to become willing to be one of those people that will go through sobriety alone. You know, they talk about that in the book. And that was not easy for me. It was not easy for me. But I said, okay, if that's what you want for me. If that, your will be done, not mine. And if that's what you want from me, I'll try my hardest. I'm not happy with that. That's not what I want, God. But if that's what you want from me, I'll try to learn how to be happy with that if that's my lot in life. 
And you know what? My happiness was no longer contingent on another human being. I took responsibility back, and I started having fun. It was okay to be me. I have a great job. I was starting to, to do pretty good in my work. I had a little extra money once in a while to go buy some clothes, to, to you know, go on a vacation back home, to, you know, do whatever. And I had a nice little apartment. I had a lot of friends. I had some self-respect. I started dating two or three different guys. You know, I was going out having a great old time. Life was good. I was happy. I was enough. And last November, I went and I met. Uh, I was at a convention in Las Vegas. Diane, who was your speaker here, was speaking there, and I went. She's my best friend, and uh, and so I went to spend the weekend with Diane, and and I met this guy. He was a meat cutter, and uh, real nice, you know. And I, he terrified me because I thought this one's a player, and I'm staying away from him. <laughs> and uh, and he liked me, and he kept calling. And he'd come to visit me because he lived in Las Vegas and I lived in California. And on June 22nd, no, well, let me go back a little about, I don't know, sometime in early May, you know, he put a pillow down on the floor and he got down on one knee and he said, will you do me the honor of being my wife? And for someone who has felt so dirty and so used and so filled with fear that they could never let anybody into their heart and love somebody and trust you know, to have that happen is a miracle that I could let someone in that way and someone could see me like that and want me. It just, and I said, yeah, you know. And, and on June 22nd of this year, at 30 years old, for the first time in my life, I walked down the aisle in my friend's backyard. He's on the program. He had an AA judge say the ceremony. I was in a white gown. I was on my brother's arm. He flew out from New England to give me away. You know, I felt pretty, I felt clean, I felt worthy, I felt loved and needed and wanted, the, the thing that we all want and deserve, you know, we all want and deserve, and um, and I felt so full and wonderful, and I am in the most, it is, it, what a, it, this is a great time of my life, I have a lot of hope to share with you, because there's nothing that's bad in my life right now. Everything is fine. Everything is beautiful. I have a great relationship. I sponsor three great girls. I love them to death. They're real willing. You know, they're real willing. And they call me and they use me. And I get to get out of myself. I'm involved in general service. I uh, I have a good job. I work. All the people in my office are on the program. There's all, we're all on the program now. 14 years, 12 years. The three salesmen in our business all have seven years. You know, so we're all neck and neck and we, and we pick each other up when we get down in the dumps and we make each other laugh and we stroke one another and tell each other that we're okay. I need that. I'm a person who needs people. I learned how to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that I have that's, a, that's good came from this program. Everything that I have. I have a little brother. He came to the program six years ago. He didn't need it. He's got six months of sobriety. He's great. He's got three or four jobs every week as coffee maker. He lives in the AA motel. <laughs> you know, he's doing great. That older sister that was so perfect has been trying to make this program for five years in and out of hospital. She's back one more time. She's real sick. 
And you know what? The fact is she may die from the disease of alcoholism because there's a lot of us that don't make it. She may die. And you know what we have here is a solution for every single problem that comes up. Life is not always great. Sometimes it's a real bitch. you got to work. But the solutions are here. I don't believe that there's anything that can happen that the solution isn't right here for. I've seen people go through divorce. I've seen people go before me and they've gone through death and they've gone through all kinds of things and they come out the other side and they're okay. And I believe that's the way it works. You know, and I just love you guys. This is such a wonderful conference. I've had some marvelous speakers, and it is such an honor to be here and to share with you and be part of it. And I'm real glad I can relax now and enjoy the conference. Thank you.